Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. My name is Tom Galvin, and this is another episode in our special series, How Should the Army Run, or HSTAR. Today's episode is probably the first of several that we will cover in the area of resource management. And today we're honored to welcome into the studio Major General Retired John Ferrari. Major General Ferrari served in the U.S. Army for over 32 years and has served as Commanding General of the White Sands Missile Range, a Deputy Commander for Programs at the NATO Training Mission in Afghanistan, and a Strategic Planner for the Combined Joint Task Force 7 in Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom. But most germane today's topic is his service as the Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation, or PA&D, from 2014 to 2019. Welcome, uh, General Ferrari. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, thank you for discussing an important topic such as this. Much appreciated, sir. And also with us is the Army War College's own Professor Bob Bradford, and he teaches the Defense Resource Management Elective and has contributed several articles and podcasts to War Room. Welcome, Bob. Thanks, Tom. Uh, so, sir, uh, you spent four years as a program integrator in PNE in the early 2000s and then served as a fellow in the Office of Management Budget for a year. So could you give us a little background on your various roles in the planning and programming processes and how you got into this field? Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, I got into this field. I was originally an armored cavalryman uh, back when there was an east-west German border. Uh, and by the mid-90s, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk about armor being dead and, and the army was lightening up. So uh, I, I switched over to become uh, an operations research officer uh, while I was teaching economics at West Point. And while at West Point, I got involved in the Office of Economic and Manpower Analysis in the Social Science Department and got to see kind of the resourcing of the Army from that perspective and personnel. And from there, I wound up, as you said, in the Pentagon in Program Analysis and Evaluation with an organization that was led by uh, General Max Thurman, uh, was kind of the, the most prominent leader of that organization. Uh, but then wound up on the business side of the Army and everything from operational commands, uh, the Security Transition Command in Afghanistan, the Combined Joint Task Force in Iraq, uh, operational headquarters in the Army, the major commands, Army Material Commands, the Joint Staff, OMB at the White House. So I got to see the resourcing and really how do you build an Army, uh, which is really uh, where I developed an expertise over time. And indeed, today's topic is about the Planning, Programming, and Budgeting and Execution System, PPBE. And uh, we specifically want to get to the criticisms against it because it's uh, one of those systems that has been continuously under discussions about needing reform, et cetera. And because it drives uh, so many resource decisions, it's, it's at the center of how we build the Army. It's at the center of how we run the Army. But before we talk about the criticisms, we probably should step back and talk about what it is uh, and take an insider's perspective, because a lot of times we'll hear it from an outside perspective by those who 
are criticizing it because it in some way did not satisfy their needs. Yeah, well, uh, so it, as you said, it's important to figure out why why this thing exists. And it was put in place in the mid-1960s by Robert McNamara. And, and the question is, why then? Uh, and if prior to World War II, we would go to war as a nation and build up the military we needed and then essentially take it apart afterwards. And we had, a you know, not large standing armies or militaries. Uh, there was no air force. So you just really had the army and the Navy at the time. After World War II, this is really the first time in our history that we kept a large standing military. And throughout the 50s, uh, we created the Defense Department in the late 1940s. Uh, the Congress and the budgets and, and people had a hard time understanding what was happening. And there was a criticism that the military services were just kind of starting programs and, you know, would yell surprise and, and, and hope they got funded by Congress. So the Defense Department, which was now sitting on top of the military departments in the mid-1960s, wanted to kind of discipline the system. And so Robert McNamara put in a, a system where you would produce a plan, you would allocate resource, resources to the plan, the second P, programming. The third part is the B, the budgeting. You would submit that to Congress, and then you would spend it. And so, you know, 1960s, a very sequential process, kind of makes a lot of sense, uh, meets congressional intent. Remember, the Constitution says that Congress has the power to raise armies and maintain navies and to appropriate funds to be spent. So the system is set up to, to meet the, the constitutional separations of duties between the two branches, the legislative and the executive, but also allow... Uh, a, a very heavy-handed uh, control over the budgets of the military departments by the Office of Secretary of Defense. There was also a lot of redundancy in uh, the service activities as well, that uh, discipline was needed, right? Uh, the services were creating programs that were redundant from each other. There was a lot of, and that that was also part of this, was it not? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, uh, you know, during the planning phase and the, the programming phase, right, there's a, there's a lot of control by the Secretary of Defense to make sure what gets into the budget uh, meets the needs of the department. Uh, remember, coming out of the 1940s, before, the 19, before World War II, the Army and the Navy, they were separate departments. And then you put this entity on top of it that would, now you had not just the Army, the Navy, but you had the Air Force, you had nuclear forces, and they were trying to rationalize all of that uh, in the 1960s. So, so it was all about control. And now we're adding the Space Force and we're you know, just constantly growing the organization. So it just becomes that much more important. So now, after so many decades, uh, to the, bringing it to the present day, who are the real key players now in the PBBE process? Who's Who really drives the train here? So I think it's important to take a quick step back and, and look at PPBE and, and look at the, it's, it's really a four-dimensional chessboard. And there are key players in each of the four different years. So if we look at today, the the services are executing 2023, that, that budget that was appropriated to Congress last year. The key players in the execution phase are the services. They've gotten the money from the Congress, and they have to spend it exactly like the Congress told them to do it. So if we're working backwards from PPBE, and that was the E, the B, the budget, right? So right now on at Congress is the 2024 budget. 
And so that is Congress is really the key player here, the appropriation committees. Uh, the president played a key role in presenting the budget and office of management uh, and budget on behalf of the president puts that together. So the, the budget phase is really a negotiation between the president uh, and the White House and his agencies and the Congress. Uh, and the, the, the P, right, the programming phase, the POM, right now inside the building, right, the POM is being built. Uh, and that's for 2025. And the responsibility and the key players are split. So the services get the first six months of the year. So the service chiefs and secretaries reign supreme for six months. They get to build their POM. And then they submit that to the Secretary of Defense's office, and then the next six months belongs to the be, belongs to the Secretary of Defense's office, both the Comptroller and, and the Cape Director. Uh, and they then go through and do what you said before, which is check and recheck and make decisions on what the services did. Also going on right now inside the Pentagon is planning for 2026. And in the planning phase, that's really the, the policy folks, the strategic plans, they, they, they kind of reign supreme in that. And the flexibility for the services is most available in 26 to least flexible in 23. And so it's important to understand the timelines, who's got the pen in each of those, and, and why it's frustrating to a lot of people who kind of just dive in and go, well, I want to change something today. So what does it do well, in your opinion? What do you think that it does uh, does well, despite the criticisms? So $850 billion is a lot of money. And there's got to be a plan and a rationalization to do that. You have military departments, you have right the what's called the fourth estate, all the defense agencies. There are there are dozens of players, right? Everything from defense health agency to COCOMs. You have operational wars and acquisition programs and military construction. Uh, the system actually does a very good job in pulling that all together. It is, it is complicated. There's almost nobody that understands everything that's in there. There are probably a few people who could carefully articulate the major pieces in it, but the level of detail that is provided to the Congress to provide their constitutional duty to appropriate money and to raise and maintain the military uh, because again, it's important. The Congress has the constitutional duty to raise and maintain the military. The president has the responsibility to be the commander in chief and use it. So the system provides thousands of pages and and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of data, individual data elements to the Congress, who then brings it back to the department in the form of an appropriation, which is, you know, 14, 1500 pages long. So it's very complex. Uh, and if you were to essentially burn it down and start again, it would be interesting, right? I'm not sure you could actually assemble all of that information uh, if you were to start from scratch again. So that's what it does well. And also, uh, I mean, 800 billion sounds like just an immense amount of money. But does it really satisfy everybody's demands or everybody's requirements? I mean, somewhere PBBE provides us with the ability to prioritize and basically tell us, uh, allows us to decide what capabilities we are going to develop given the constraint of $850 billion, even though 
many people would not think of that as uh, being constraining. Yeah, and that's one of the criticisms of the system is because it's supposed to do that. That planning phase, right, is supposed to deliver a plan that then can be resourced. Uh, but there's always the big debate, like, am I planning to be resource constrained? Like, okay, I've got $805 billion, so now I have to develop a plan that fits within that. Or am I developing a plan to meet the national security needs? And then we have to go get the resources to do it, in which case you're generally always going to be uh, short-changed. And, you know, over time, right, we used to have like a one and a half wars, and then we had one war plus a small one. Now it's one war. And so they try to, th it's going to be a short war. And so, right, they try to tweak the plans to try to keep a lid on the, the cost of the force. But even then, right, the real world intervenes. And so the plan is, okay, we only do one one war at a time and we'll be out of CENTCOM and we won't fight a war there, but we're still in Syria. We're, you know, ramping up against China and you still have uh, Europe. So the, the plan, which calls for one war at a time, you know, but the military actually is, you know, really engaged in three different theaters at the same time. And so that's why there's this insatiable demand that, that's out there for money and resources uh, because, right, you're really fighting on three fronts, uh, you know, a hot war, a cold war, and a, and a small war uh, on a strategy that says, well, you only do one of those at a time. And uh, also the, uh, the timeline that you described of uh, these phases happening over the course, or basically multiple phases occurring at the same time going out several years, um, it brings up questions about flexibility, because if it's one of the things that people do complain about PPBE is that it is difficult to change. It doesn't provide flexibility that some would want. But that ability to control and monitor and get the decisions right over those years would seem to be a, an important benefit. So do you comment on that? Yeah. So again, the inflexibility uh, depends upon which year you're talking about. And Secretary Kendall has been in the news looking for more flexibility to start acquisition programs uh, in the year of execution. But remember, in 2023, if you want to start right, that that the money for 2023 is literally an act of Congress. And so people who want flexibility to spend the money differently, it's like, well, okay, but right the Congress says, my copy of the Constitution says, once we pass a law, that you have to follow the law. And the law says you're going to spend the money A, B, C, and D. And now you want to change that. And so there are purists in Congress who say, hey, right, no, right, you can't do that without coming back and getting either a reprogramming or a, uh, or a new law that allows you to change the money. So it is designed because the Congress wants to keep control over the executive branch. And the way it does that is through the, the pocketbook. Uh, now, Secretary Kendall is saying, hey, you know, it, this thing was set up back in the 60s and even the congressional appropriations, they're yearly. Right. And but but you got to submit it the year. The president's got to submit it, you know, six to eight months before. So it's really two years of inflexibility and the technology cycle is much faster than that now. So that was okay in the 60s. Uh, so, so the question then is, well, how do you adapt the constitutional requirements of the Congress and the timelines to allow uh, the services to start things that weren't approved by the Congress? There's a, a book out called The Power Broker. It's about how 
Robert Moses built, uh, he, he built roads in New, in New York. And he always used to say, if I can pave the first mile of a highway, then I will always get the money for the rest of it. And so the Congress always fears that the services are going to start a program and then dare the Congress to kill it. And so it's very reticent to let it start a program because of the tyranny of that first mile. Once you get that camel's nose under the tent, then Congress believes its flexibility to appropriate money to raise the military's right is then taken away by the executive branch. But there is still some flexibility in the system. I mean, there are ways in which uh, services can do some uh, some level of building capability within their purview. Like there's there's some flexibility once you get down to service level, depending on which accounts we're talking about, or depending on which appropriations we're talking about. Uh, so, is the inflexibility a little overstated? Um, is it you know, what do so you I think? guess it depends on right, like you said, which appropriation you're talking about. Uh, if it's the and, and that's a good, very good point because the military construction appropriation is project level detail. If you want to turn a shovel of dirt, you need permission from Congress up to some. You know, if it's below three million, you can you can you can do it on your own. But if it's a major construction project, right, there is no flexibility, and Congress does that on purpose, right? Because they want to control that. If it's operations and maintenance funding, that's pretty flexible, right? I mean, that's going out and buying things uh, and services. Now, the executive branch has at time misbehaved with O&M flexibility. And so the war in Iraq in 2003, they didn't go to Congress and ask for permission or extra money to do that but they use the money to set the theater because O&M is very flexible and, and fluid. And, and, and they used it to sign log cap contracts that essentially then had contractors build buildings and buy things to get around appropriation law. So then Congress came back and said, okay, no more of that because right, you, you can't just hire a contractor, call it a service and have them build a building and not come back to us. Uh, where you hear a lot of it, though, is in the acquisition, the research development, and the procurement. And, and there is a, a very good criticism from the executive branch that those appropriations are, are extremely micromanaged by the Congress and have little flexibility. And that's really, I think, where the rub is, uh, because the money's literally appropriated down sometimes to thousands of dollars. And big programs that are event-driven Right, you want the ability to start faster if you have a breakthrough where you can't move from research and development to procuring until you go through the congressional steps. And if you happen to hit it at the wrong pace, you might wind up waiting almost two years for that new start. So, so when you hear a lot of the criticism about going faster, it's generally in the research development in the procurement accounts. Hey, sir, some some have uh, proposed instead of program level budgeting some sort of portfolio level budgeting that allows the executive the ability to move things between one fighter jet to another what are some of the resistances to that i mean if the executive can determine hey uh, the next generation air dominance is ready and i'm going to move money that i was buying f18s and now i'm going to buy something new what are some of the objections to that allowing the executive that authority 
Yeah. So that what what the congressional leaders will say is, well, okay, if the executive decides they want to build more nuclear weapons, right, they can start without talking to us. Or if they want to start a, what was happening in the 60s, where the services would start more programs than they could afford in the long term. So it's actually not very expensive to start a program. And then dare the Congress and, you know, the, the production lines would get up and running. Promises would be made to manufacturers about new programs and there wouldn't be enough money. And then Congress would be stuck between having to kill a program or or funding it. And so that that's kind of the major criticism is like if you're going to spend a trillion dollars on a weapon system, right, the Congress is saying, hey, maybe you should come and ask us first. So the, I think Secretary Kendall, Secretary of the Air Force's criticism is right now we have a emerging challenge that is uh, perhaps outpacing us technologically, and we need to be able to have the speed to make those decisions as we test new hypersonic things. If they test well, we need to be able to move procurement without waiting two years. Is there, do you think there's, it's feasible that Congress could give some limited flexibility in some just specific areas, something like that, and not for everything to avoid the bad behavior? So, so I think that the main challenge that we have to overcome uh, between the two branches of government is that of trust, right? Because you have to write what Secretary Kendall's saying, hey, trust me, I, I will do the right things. And the Congress goes, hey, in the past, we've trusted people and they haven't done the right things. And so no more trust. And we can't see, right? You only give us information once per year. You drop off the budget and then we don't see you again until you drop off the next one. And it's easy within the Department of Defense because we have databases, right? And people report up and senior leaders get their briefings. They call for a briefing and, you know, the Secretary Kendall says, let me see this, let me see. So he's got constant, he's got his pulse on a lot of these programs where he now can make those decisions, but the Congress really sees none of them. And so one of the, one of the things people have been talking about is, well, how do you, how do you get that level of trust between the organizations. And it's it's interesting because if you pull out your phone, right, parents will hit a button on their smartphone, a car will show up, they'll put their eight-year-old in it, in a stranger's car, and allow that stranger to take them to soccer practice. It's called Uber, right? So we figured out as a society, right, how to trust the relationship with our most valued asset, our children. And so, and, and why is that? Well, you know, you, you, right. You've got transparency. You can see the car coming. Uber's sort of vent, vetted the drivers. You can see where it goes. The kids probably got a phone, right? So you can watch it and you can see it. And now you trust it. The budget doesn't work that way, right? They dump it over once a year and Congress really doesn't get a lot of execution data. So there is a discussion like, well, what if the Congress and, the services and the department and OMB and the president, we just had one database and everybody had access to it at all time. And Congress could track a program in real time and type in and see it and see the acquisition milestones and ask questions. And right. The executive branch goes, no, wait a minute. We can't let Congress into our databases. We don't trust them. Right. They'll just ask a lot of questions. And Congress goes, well, if you're not going to trust us, then we'll this, the only control mechanism we really have is this, 
mother may I annual appropriation. And so I do think that, right, if the department wants more trust, it's going to have to give trust. And, and the way to do that is transparency, right? That's the key. It's like, okay, here it all is down to the program level detail, all the same briefings, the secretary sees, the Congress sees, and then maybe you can figure out, like you can go in there and request, and then it's all automated in how the Congress will allow and see the changes that are requested. So I think that's that that will go a long way to kind of perhaps speeding this up because what you're talking about are micro level decisions made currently within a macro process cycle that runs, you know, 24 months. No, I, I think uh, your targeting of trust is, is key. That is, uh, you know, in the army, we say trust is the bedrock of our profession and you, you only earn trust, you know, you can only give trust when someone earns it and the power dynamic, they have the money, we have to earn the trust. I think that's that's fair. Um, yeah, and the other thing we don't often realize is, you know, a lot of us, we all cycle through the Pentagon and we do our time and then we leave and then we come back and, you know, maybe. And people go over to the Congress and they go, hey, you know, here's, let me tell you about this. And, and they don't realize that the staff and the members have been there sometimes for decades. And they've heard a lot of people telling the story. So when you come in with a different story, they're like, well, you know, 10 years ago, somebody told me this. And so there, in many ways, the executive branch is a lot more transactional in these arrangements, especially if you think of the turnover, the senior leaders, right? The secretary of defense, the deputy secretary of the service, right? They last two years. You go to the appropriation committees, some of them have been there for 30 years, right? So the department is a very transactional organization. The Congress is a very relationship-driven organization. And so you have this clash of culture that the PPBE represents, right? Transactional versus relationship. And we say, well, the key is trust. Well, that means it's more the relationship model than not. And what I always tell new action officers uh, in the Pentagon is, or even general officers, like if you're going over to Congress and the first thing's out of your mouth are, hello, my name is, right? You've already lost. Because if you have to introduce yourself to them, that's just, you know, you're, you, you have no trust, you have nothing, right? You're just starting from scratch. And so, you know, you really want to go in there and go, Mr. Congressman, how are you doing? Right? Hey, right. I hear your son did this or your dog, right? That's how you start the conversations and build trust, right? So you won't find that in the manuals. You write the PPBE, but but that's really where a lot of it comes to. Do you think we do enough in our professional development to prepare action officers to go in? Because that's a uh, this is a, a, a general talent management challenge as well, right? So I think it's more, you know, talent management, maybe it's cultural, right? So we are a very, and I'll speak for the Army, especially, right, since I've got experience there. The Army is very operational and task-driven. Here are your tasks, go do your task, come back, do it for a certain period of time, move on to something else. That's one of the challenges we had to teach ourselves in Iraq and Afghanistan, right, which is, you know, hey, right, you actually get that, right, nobody's going to, right, you can't come into the to the town and find the, you know, the leadership and go, Hey, here I am. And this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, just listen to me and everything will be good. Right. You got to build that trust in the relationship. So, so it's bigger than just 
talent management. It's creating a culture of really learning that it's a multi-period game, right? Uh, and it, But if you're only in there for a short period of time, it looks like it's one and done or two and done. And, and, and you really need to be planting the seeds today for Palm 26, right? Four years out and working it iteratively. And I, I spent, you know, six plus years in PA&E the second time straight. And, you know, I did three and a half years the first time. So I have almost a decade in that one organization. And that allowed me to kind of build that trust, not just with Congress, but also, but, but more importantly for the army with the office of the secretary of defense, which is like, Hey, remember when I was here three years ago and we were talking about this, look, this is what we're doing, or here's why it's changed. Right. Because uh, the, the civilians who work in the department of defense, they've been there a long time. Yeah, which kind of uh, you know follows on. Are we doing enough to produce more General Ferraris? Is kind of the the question I'm asking. Well, I think some people might say, you know, no way, don't do that, right? So, <laughs> uh, so, so I think it's hard, right? Because uh, our army and our military in general values right people who are spending time in operational units, and you know, I was very lucky. Uh, I was kind of hand managed and managed to do a lot of operational assignments after I left the operational career field, whether it's at Army Material Command or in Iraq or Afghanistan. And and it takes senior leaders moving people around and creating jobs and, and putting them in those positions uh, in order in order to do that. And, and it was something in, in fairness, right? It was something that I enjoyed doing. So I stayed with it while I was doing it. Uh, you've got to really kind of love the army in the process to become a specialist in PPBE, right? Uh, because, <laughs> uh, it's not exactly the most exciting thing. And there's the other criticism of it, right? There is a very, very, very high barrier to entry to participate in the PPBE process, which turns a lot of people off because it is very complicated and there is a lot of data and it, it is interlocking and it's like a hall of mirrors. And if you don't understand that and understand all the players and where the interactions are, you get frustrated very fast. So if you're a senior operator who's coming into the Pentagon and you, you're frustrated because you're trying to get something done, you're not going to recommend and mentor other people to come in because you've just had a bad experience. It takes years, right? The, the only reason I was really successful as the PA&E was because I was a recidivist. I had spent three and a half years in PA&E before that. But I also had spent time at OSD and at the White House and at a major command. So I had seen the puzzle from every different lens and I could relate to everybody in it and hit the ground running. Hey, sir, you know, we're talking about how should the Army run. You served, you mentioned 10 years in PA&E. You've seen the puzzle from every angle. Does it need reform? Should we change it? Or is it okay? So when you say it, right? So is it PPBE that needs reform? Sure, right? I mean, so a process designed in the 60s, right? The cycle times have changed. Uh, The challenge, again, is even within the department, right? The information systems don't support change. So 
the the major commands have one information system which feeds a programming information system in the department that's different and the data gets changed and then when the programmers are done with it they send it to the budgeters and the data gets changed again and then when it goes to OMB the data gets changed you you can't it's a very sequential database and you can't go backwards and you can't recreate things and that's what gets people frustrated because you're asked questions and you get different answers because the data, the way the data is assembled and disassembled at every step along the way. And so the real reform, right, the, the process will run at the speed of the information systems. And unfortunately, the information systems were all built, you know, in the 90s and in the 80s. And the speed of decision making was different back then in technology. And so until you get at that information technology system, you can't speed up or really change the system because, right, you can change the process. But again, right, somebody's got a key in the data and there's only one way to key in the data. And the data has to go from A to B to C to D to E and it produces these reports. Now, it sounds sounds like a, a large challenge for someone to figure out an enterprise business system that might work for the whole enterprise and not just uh, different lanes within it. But in general, the process could work faster if we could share information and had trust. Yes. And it's no different than, right, if you walked outside and needed a car, right, you hit a button, right, you're sharing information off your phone and they're sharing information and you have that trust and the car shows up and takes you from A to B. Now, if I walked outside and I hit a button and uh, two burglars showed up and took everything out of my pockets, uh, I would not have that trust anymore. And so that's, uh, you know, when you share your open, here's where all my money is and here's where I have it, and Congress moves it around, which is their prerogative, people are less likely to show everything that's in their pockets. And and so that's where I think, you know, if I'm the program manager for the greatest program in the world, because I am the manager of it, but it really isn't performing, my money's going to get taken from me if I tell people about it. And so that's where everyone has to elevate and and have the shared purpose, the shared understanding of the challenge. I think perhaps as we as we move forward with a new uh, with the recent trends in our strategy where we're focused on one pacing challenge, perhaps we can get some of that shared understanding and vision for what the future should take. It should be, but you know, to your question or your your vignette there, if you are a program manager and you are underperforming, you you should lose your money, right? You shouldn't be able to hide within the information system in obscurity and you know, hope nobody notices, right? Uh, you you think that perhaps, you know, maybe you could load the POM into chat GPT-4 and see what it comes out with, right? And uh, you, right, it might be interesting what we could find inside of that thing, right? Because again, it's hundreds of thousands of data elements that, that individually are interesting. And sometimes though, when you aggregate them the way that somebody aggregated them 20 years ago, it doesn't make any sense today. Yeah, and the other thing about uh, reforms is uh, there will be some lag effects. Like uh, we won't necessarily know what the second and third order effects are and how the system will adjust to those reforms uh, for for some time afterwards. Is that fair? That that's hundred percent true. And uh, you know, the other thing about reform is uh, you have to change your process. And what's happened over time is right you know we had mainframe computers and we developed a process for that and then we went to desktop computers and we just tried to automate and think about it right it's like hey it's electric the leave form is electronic it's a pdf well okay that's not electronic right that's just taking a 
paper, scanning it and moving it along digital path, but you didn't change a single thing. It's still got the same signature blocks, the same routing as if you were in World War II, right? As opposed to, you know, just keying it in once and then it, you know, the whole routing system and the whole approval thing changes, right? And so, uh, but you've had organizations build up at every step along the process and essentially they charge a toll, which is like, you have to come and get my signature or permission, right? Or they take a part of it or they aggregate, they get power. And, and all of these processes and organizations grew up around a system that was designed because that's how mainframe computers processed information. We never redid the processes for desktops and now we're in the mobile era with mobile cell, you know, mobile phones, which could really upend everything. Uh, and we're trying to design mobile applications, but people try to design them as if the, the information was still flowing the way we designed it for mainframes. And so you have to go into these things saying, I am willing to change my organizational structure and process around the new technology. But what happens when somebody wants to design this? They'll go, okay, here are all the steps along the way that the new system has to have. And we just take the limitations and capabilities of the old technology and we try to build them into the new technology, right? And that's the, that's the challenge that we've got. We're uh, just about uh, coming to end of time. Uh, I'd like to leave the floor to you, sir, for uh, any final thoughts or comments. Yeah, well, so first, again, thanks uh, for what you both are doing, because this is a, a really, really, really important topic and that most people don't talk about. And for everybody listening who's interested in this, uh, resourcing and building armies are really, really important. Uh, for, for us, especially at this level, uh, the decisions we make within PPBE, we don't actually have to live with the risk. The risk is entirely borne by the 18-year-old kids who are going to go fight the next war. And unfortunately, we don't have a good track record over the last 100 years, right? Whether it was Kayserine Pass with, you know, gasoline tanks that burnt people to death or uh, Task Force, uh, you know, Desert One in, in Iran where, uh, you know, we killed uh, airmen and other military members without actually meeting the enemy, the march to Baghdad, right? Hillbilly armor. We don't have a good track record. And so it's incumbent upon all of us to, to look at these processes seriously because the next war, it's going to be those 18 year old kids again, who go out there and live with the decisions we make within this process. So this is as serious, if not more serious than a lot of the operational decisions, because, Operationally, you know, you can mess up a unit, but at this level, with this process, you can mess up an entire army. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, sir. It's, it was a pleasure having you in the studio. Yep. Thank you. And that's all the time we have for now. We welcome any suggestions you have on future episodes of How Should the Army Run. Meanwhile, you can access the How the Army Runs Reference Guide and other texts on matters of Army leadership and management on the War Room site under the Reference Materials tab. With that, I'm Tom Galvin signing off, and let's work together to make the Army all it can be. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. 
Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.